All right, our reading this morning is 2 Kings 5. You can see in your bulletin, um, if you have your Bibles, take them out and turn there with me. You can see, though, it's a long passage, so feel free if you need to, to take a seat to do so. But I will invite uh, you to remain standing as we read God's Word, if you are able. And we're reading uh, the entire chapter, which is really just one episode in its entirety. So this is 2 Kings chapter 5, and we will begin at verse 1. This is the reading, or this is the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not just wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times at the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Remon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Remon. When I bow myself in the house of Remon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, They have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver, two changes of clothing. 
And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elijah said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Redeemer. Lord, would you take this ancient word of, of, of prophets and of, of, of a culture so removed from ours in order to bring us to see you, in order to see the works of, of your Son on our behalf, even using a text like this. Lord, would you do this work by your Holy Spirit in our midst this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God is amazing in his timing. Uh, I certainly did not plan it where uh, on, a, on a morning where we had a couple of baptisms, uh, we just happened to be in one of the great baptism passages in all of the Bible. Unclean Naaman needs some healing, and Elisha says to him, get in the water. One author perfectly described this story as it's one of those Old Testament stories that just begs to be connected to the New Testament. I really like that idea, and, and I hope you see what he means by that, because what you have here is God's saving power, which is extending beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentile world. Again, it's a story of baptism, where Naaman comes down to just ordinary water in the Jordan River, but he's accompanied by this extraordinary word that Naaman's servants can, can understand and, and hear and point Naaman to. It's a story about the power and wisdom of the world contrasted with the power and wisdom of God. And so in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that he doesn't speak a message of the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of the age who are coming to nothing, but he proclaims God's wisdom. Naaman begins the story, a ruler of this age that's coming to nothing. And the story ends with him in a completely different place. But if you listen carefully, now you don't have to listen too carefully, just the end of the story, you also notice that it doesn't end quite on a, on a high note, does it? I mean, if the, if the story ended in verse 19, this is just this wonderful celebration, isn't it? You have this, this incredible conversion story of Naaman. But instead, chapter 5 ends with Elisha's servant Gehazi, who attempts to get a little financial gain out of the dealings with the mighty Syrian general. And so it's a story of two men who are contrasted with each other. And both of these men represent stumbling blocks to the message of the God who saves. And these are stumbling blocks that I think are found in all of our hearts. All of our hearts. This is a story about two radical problems that cut through each and every one of us. So on the one hand, Naaman represents human pride. He is a man who in every human respect is worthy of honor and prestige and greatness. He has received accolades and respect. And that means that he is going to have this tendency to trust in his own greatness. So the question for Naaman 
which is a question for all of us, is can you get low enough? Can you get low enough? Can you get low enough in order to be exalted by God? On the other hand, Gehazi represents a different kind of pride. And so I'm calling Gehazi's problem, not pride, but he has a problem with grace. It's the problem of religious pride. It's the natural tendency of those who have received grace to forget the fact uh, or we forget the fact once we've received grace that, that all of a sudden we start to have this, this idea seep in that maybe we are inherently deserving of good. We are worthy of God's grace, which doesn't make sense at all. Then it wouldn't be grace. Gehazi is an Israelite who believes he's entitled. And, and so if, if pride is a threat to our openness to God's work in the gospel, just as deadly is entitlement which is just a different flavor of pride as those who have received God's grace. And so those are the two problems we're going to look at. Two points this morning as we look at first the story of Naaman and that kind of natural pride and then the problem of Gehazi, which is that kind of spiritual pride, religious pride and entitlement. All right, so right from the beginning, let's look at the problem of, of Naaman's pride. Verse 1 has a lot of information. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Again, loaded with information. Naaman is a military commander in Aram. Aram is just a different name for the same country, Syria. That's Israel's direct northern neighbor. Constantly, they're at war with one another. This is seemingly a time of peace, but it's always back and forth with wars between Israel and the mightier nation of Syria. Typically, Israel needs to team up with Judah in order to go fight Syria. At this time, there's peace, but what we know about Naaman is that he is one of the highest-ranking military commanders in mighty Syria. The fame and valor of Naaman is highlighted three times, all emphasizing his greatness. He's great in the eyes of the king. He's highly regarded. He's a valiant soldier. And another remarkable part about this passage is did you notice where Naaman's greatness comes from? Our author tells us, through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. We have here this one little sentence, this powerful reminder of God's sovereignty, don't we? This is the God who makes kings to rise and fall. Naaman is successful. Naaman is victorious because the Lord is working through Naaman. God has been providing Israel's enemy military commander success. Naaman doesn't know that. You can imagine Naaman trusts in his own greatness. He trusts in his own ability to mobilize his troops. He trusts in his own kind of military strategic thinking. Or maybe he's just a, a rank worshiper of the Syrian god Rimon. And so he goes to the temple of Rimon and he makes sacrifices to a dead false idol for his greatness. And Yet we know the reason. Even if he doesn't know it, the Lord is behind Naaman's success. Naaman is great, a leader of leaders, a man of valor. And then the last point kind of negates everything. He has leprosy. It's like you have bowling pins of his greatness, and then you send the bowling ball of leprosy to just, who cares how great you are if no one wants to look at you? Naaman is a leper. He has some kind of skin disease. Something probably close to psoriasis and just the idea that you can notice it. You can notice the person's skin isn't okay. Flaking skin, discoloration of hair. And so we have Naaman who is great with this giant asterisk of physical need. And then immediately we're introduced to a second character who stands as the foil to Naaman and Naaman's greatness. Look at verse 2. 
Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife and she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So if Naaman is introduced by his greatness, we now have the second character, this young girl, and she's introduced by her tragedy. A band of raiders from Aram took her. I mean, that barely gets at the heart of what's going on with this little girl, right? I think uh, in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, I think she does a good job here. She's often criticized for speculating and kind of filling in too much, but it makes sense here. This, is what, this comes from the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, there was a little slave girl who worked for Naaman. Not long before, Naaman had led an army raid on her home in Israel. He'd killed her whole family, carried her off to Syria, and made her into a slave. Every night she cried herself to sleep. She had lost everything. Now, do we know Naaman led the army raid? No, but maybe he did. Was her family killed? Probably her family was killed. Did she cry herself to sleep every night? A lot of nights I'm sure she cried herself to sleep. Did she lose everything? Yes. She lost everything. And yet she points Naaman to a source of life. She points Naaman to the prophet in Israel. She barely has any appearance in the story, but she has this outsized importance. She points her masters to the place, to the person that she knows can provide help to Elisha. Well, Naaman is so desperate that he goes to the king of Aram and he tells them what the slave girl has said. The king says, I'm gonna send a letter to the king of Israel. He comes with a whole bunch of treasure and he sets off. The king of Israel, who's probably Jehoram, one of Ahab's sons, he receives the letter and he interprets it as an act of provocation and tears his robes. It's kind of humorous. He interprets this as saying, you need to heal my military leader. You need to heal my right-hand man. And Jehoram says, I can't do that. What do you, what do you expect of me? Everybody has missed the point. The slave girl says, go to the prophet. Naaman goes to the king, who goes to the other king. He's still dealing with the only kind of power that he understands. He brings an incredible amount of money in order to gain a hearing, uh, but it's all missed the point. And so Elisha hears the king tearing his robe, and he says, send the guy to me. Send him to my house. So Naaman shows up, full entourage, everything about him reflecting worldly glory and greatness. He's got chariots. He's got horses. He's got riches. He's got the letter from the king. And how does Elisha deal with him? Keep him outside of my house. I'm going to go send a messenger to him. If you remember from last week, what does Elisha represent? He represents the presence of God. Remember that little room has all the furnishings of the temple from the Shunammite woman. Elisha is the temple site. Naaman is an unclean, leprous Gentile. He cannot come into the presence of God, which is Elisha. So Elisha keeps him outside. Elisha sends a messenger, like a preacher of the gospel, to tell Naaman what to do. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But the pride of Naaman becomes inflamed. He's waiting for the prophet to come out, say some incantations, wave his arms all around him. And, and Naaman says, the rivers in Damascus and Syria, those are some beautiful rivers. You want me to go to your muddy, nasty little Jordan River stream? Why did I come here? And the servants say, well, you wanted a great action, but did he really just give you an extraordinary, powerful word? And Naaman says, good point. And he does just as Elisha said. He reverses course. He goes down, dips himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that. And you don't want to miss this. His flesh became clean like a little child. Great Naaman has become like who? Oh, he's become like the young girl. 
at the beginning of the story. The young girl sent mighty Naaman to Elisha, who by God's power and grace has flesh like that of a young boy. But not just the flesh of a young boy, he now is the heart of a young boy. Now I know that there is no God in all the world but in Israel. The pride of Naaman has been washed away, but not just his leprosy. In fact, the leprosy isn't Naaman's ultimate problem. The leprosy was the occasion for God to work on this deeper heart problem of Naaman, which is amazing because when you take a step back, you look at this story, which I feel like just, it, it, it has so much just resonance with, with, with our lives and, and how we think of things. I think what's amazing here is how much Naaman is a powerful reflection of our own hearts. The problem of our pride, the problem of our self-reliance, the problem of our belief in our own greatness. Naaman went into the water pretty confident in his own greatness, and then he comes out of the water confident in God's greatness. Naaman came out of the water with flesh like a little child, and also with something like faith like a little child, which is exactly what Jesus calls for. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think it's relatively easy for us to be like Naaman. We're looking for the flashy. We're looking for the impressive. And yet the most powerful message, the message that saves, is a word about a crucified Savior. It's a message that we believe, can that really answer the questions, the problems that I have. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, that message is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We preach Christ crucified. Naaman is expecting a pretty dramatic, powerful event with this, infinite, uh, this uh, infamous prophet, and he's given a message. And we're given a message too. A message that in Christ Jesus you are forgiven. With Naaman we share a word that says come to the waters of baptism and find your identity there. I mentioned before, this is a baptism story at the end of the day. It's a story of of coming with nothing in our hands but need. It's to trust that simple water accompanied by God's word and spirit can really accomplish something been said many times, I don't know where it originated, but all baptism at the end of the day is infant baptism. All baptism is infant baptism, where we bring nothing and receive everything. I think Naaman's story shows us this. His problem was when he thought he brought something. But baptism is not a mark of our accomplishments. It's our entrusting ourselves to God. It's not boasting in ourselves. It's boasting in him. It's not a declaration, this we will do, but it's God's declaration of what he has done and is doing and will continue to do. That's the problem of of pride that we see in the life of Naaman. Now let's look at the the problem of really of grace, our problem with grace, of, of, of religious pride that we see in the story of Gehazi. Again, if all this ended at verse 19, it's just a feel good story. Uh, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end as a feel-good story. Again, Gehazi is the proud religious man, and he represents our problem with grace. Now, how is grace a problem, right? How is it a problem? We like grace. We talk about grace. We sing of grace. We pray of grace. We talk about it all the time. And the idea of the problem of grace is that we like it when we're the recipients of it, but we're not especially happy when we think someone is worthy of judgment and yet they receive grace, which again is ironic because grace by definition has to go to the undeserving. 
Our problem or discomfort with grace is on full display in the story of Gehazi. Remember who Gehazi is. He's Elisha's servant. We met him last week. He's the bumbling sidekick, and he's really going to step in it this morning. Naaman comes for healing, loaded with riches to give to the prophet in exchange for healing, and Elisha refuses the payment after Naaman is healed. Think of the background of this passage. It's famine in the land. For about half of Elisha's ministry, there's famine that kind of controls the story. And that's happening here. Resources are limited. So here's this offer of financial windfall. And Elisha refuses it. And so in verse 20, we read of Gehazi, My master was too easy on Naaman the Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Elisha has been too easy on Naaman, this Aramean. See, Gehazi's problem isn't just greed. It's envy, it's discontent, it's indifference toward the works of God. I mean, he has witnessed a miracle. He has witnessed a Gentile come to faith in God, a proud and haughty man who went down into the waters as one thing, and he came out of the waters something completely different. He has a heart toward God. He has a sensitivity toward sin. Did anyone catch that the most obscure part of this passage is when Naaman comes out of the water and he asks for preemptive forgiveness. He says, I have to go back and be the right-hand man of the king. He's still going to want to go to the temple of the Syrian gods. I'm going to have to go with him. Will, Will God forgive me if I go with him? And Elisha says, yeah, you are forgiven. He has a sensitivity towards sin coming out of the water. And Gehazi has witnessed all of this and he's completely unmoved. He doesn't care. Elisha has been too easy on Naaman, this Aramean. Gehazi has forgotten that every act of God's salvation is nothing less than a new creation. This Aramean, this man, is simply worthy of contempt. Now it's understandable to some extent. It's relatable to some extent. I mean, we can use our imaginations here. This is really similar, at least, to imagine a Ukrainian pastor ministering to a high-ranking Russian general who, once he is converted, is going to go back to be Putin's right-hand man. And you didn't take any money for working with that guy. Or maybe imagine Jesus ministering to a Roman centurion. So Elisha ministers to his enemy, an enemy who will go back and be in a place of power as an enemy. Yet Gehazi's indifference toward Naaman is a form of hatred And that evolves into something like sin against God. Sometimes we think of it as we sin against God, that leads to sin against our fellow man. But of course, the inverse is completely true as well. When we sin against our fellow man, then we sin against God. And and they go together. When Jesus says the, the first commandment is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, he says a second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. It's not in second place, love your neighbor. It's a second is like it. They go together like a tapestry, woven together. John says in 1 John, right, you can't hate your brother and love God. Those two don't make any sense. They come up together. And I'm bringing this up because Naaman has indifference toward, or Gehazi has indifference toward Naaman. And then immediately takes the Lord's name in vain. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to chase him down and get paid. We have another baptism. He baptizes his sin. Gehazi comes from the people of God who have been the recipients of God's blessing And Gehazi has developed a spirit of entitlement, a spirit of deserving. 
which is religious pride. God may have done something in the life of Naaman. That's fine. I can live with that. That's God's prerogative. He can do whatever he wants to do. But what about me? What about my faithfulness? What about my suffering? God, when are you going to throw me a bone? So Gehazi chases down Naaman. Naaman calls out, is everything all right? And he says, everything's okay. If you were here last week, that's the exact verbatim exchange between Gehazi and the Shunammite woman who desperately is looking for Elisha. Gehazi intercepts her and says, is everything okay? He should have heard his words because she was desperate for God's profit. He's desperate for financial gain. But his conscience isn't stung. Gehazi takes the money. He puts it in his house and Elijah says, hey, where you've been? He said, I was here the whole time. And then in verse 26, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Gehazi sins against a Gentile and he's put in the place of a Gentile. Gehazi ends the story as the one who is unclean. As one writer puts it, Gehazi's lust for Gentile wealth and power leaves him with Gentile uncleanness and exclusion. So I've been looking at 2 Kings 5 all week. There's been another story that I, I, I really think is relatable to this. It's probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. It's the story of the two sons who I think Naaman and Gehazi represent to some extent. If you remember that story of a father who has two sons, the younger son goes to the father. It's from Luke 15. And the younger son says, I want my inheritance now. And the father gives the younger son his inheritance. And the son lives a life of just pursuing the desires of his flesh. He spends his life seeking, uh, self-seeking pleasure. Everything he's doing is for his own pleasure and delight. And he runs out of money. He finds himself competing with the pigs to eat the, the, the scraps. And he finds himself with the pigs and he says, you know, the servants of my father, they live better than I do here with the pigs. So maybe I'll return to my father and he will at least give me a job as a servant in his house. And of course, the son goes home and the father sees him far off and the father runs to him and embraces him. And he says, put the ring on his finger, put the robes on his, on his back and we're gonna kill the fatted calf and have a feast tonight. And then we're introduced to the other son, the older son who's seething with anger. And the father consents it, so he goes to the older son. He says, what's wrong with you? And he's furious. And he says, how could you have a feast for him? I am dutiful. I've always been here. And what's the response of the father? The response of the father to the older son is, you are always with me. And everything I have belongs to you. We're celebrating because your brother was dead, but he's alive again. So what was Gehazi's sin? He lost sight not only of his uncleanness, he lost sight of God's mercy to him and his uncleanness. Like the older brother, he forgot that he belonged to God. And again, it's so easy for us. It's easy for me to forget who I belong to or my comfort and joy are found. Uh, it's why baptism isn't just a meaningless ritual. It's not just a declaration of my faith and my hopes and, and dreams. No, it's something that God does for us so that in our envy, we can remember God's provision to us. And in our bitterness, we can remember God's love. And in our temptation, the freedom that we have in Christ. Can you relate to Gehazi? Can you relate to the older brother? I mean, if not today, you will soon. Because we all forget God's grace toward us. 
in the end, we all resemble Naaman, Gehazi included. Not in our greatness, but in our uncleanness. To be those cleansed by the work of God, the cleansing waters of the Jordan, just this, this pale reflection, this faint echo of the better cleansing blood of Jesus. To fight our bitterness, to fight our envy, our greed, our fear, our self-righteousness, remembering who we are and who Jesus is for us. That he took your uncleanness, that he took your sin, that he bore your curse. Remember who you are, and more importantly, remember whose you are. That your worth is not found in the passing glories of this world. That your security and your joy will not be found in all the places that surround us, telling us that they will satisfy us. All of those are found in belonging to God, of knowing whose you are. A belonging, this story reminds us, was announced to you, given to you, in ordinary water accompanied by an extraordinary word of the gospel that said Christ is for you. Would you remember that? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this word of an ancient Near Eastern military commander of the servant of one of the great prophets, of a world that feels so remote from our daily lives, and yet would you use this word to penetrate into our hearts, to reveal our pride, to reveal our idols of comfort and of happiness found in all the wrong places, that you would reveal like, all the ways, like Naaman, that we look for something spectacular and flashy, when at the, the end of the day, what's given to us is consistent, found in the ordinary means of grace, a word preached, simple water, bread and wine. Lord, in those means, you come alongside us and you remind us by your spirit who we belong to. And that is the tool. That, that is where we engage the fight against the bitterness and the envy, against the pride that so easily seep into our hearts. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you use this word to shape us, to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. Lord, we depend on you to do that kind of work and know that you've promised to do just that kind of thing in our midst. And we thank you and pray this in your name.